Welcome to the Bethel Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Chris Fallaton. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ibethel.org. Well, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this day. We pray, God, that you would just release revelation on us today. Uh, it would be practical revelation in which we can uh, shepherd and uh, our children into uh, sexual health. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, um, we're talking about, obviously, we're talking about sexuality today. I hope that you came ready for that. And uh, wanna, I want to just give you some steps to developing a healthy sexual culture. And uh, first of all, I just want to say that how many understand what God created sex? That there was sex before there was sin. And uh, how many of you know that God, when God said, be fruitful, multiply, he gave you a sex drive? How many of you believe that? The rest of you, where did you get yours? <laughs> the devil gave me mine. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, he gave you a sex drive. Now the question is, what does it mean to have a sex drive? I've been asking this question all over the world. And I have a definition, but you might have a different one. My definition is, it means you want to have sex with somebody. And the goal of a healthy sexual culture isn't to get rid of your sex drive, it's to learn to manage your appetite. So part of the challenge we have in, in, uh, in Christendom is that we often shame sex. How many of you know that the world perverts sex? Religion tends to shame it, but the kingdom celebrates it. And so my first point is, celebrate your sexuality, because God actually is the one who created it. And it's really important that we learn how to embrace our sexuality. Do you know why you have a sex drive years before God wants you to have sex inside of marriage? To torture you. I'm sorry. It's the wrong point. I got the wrong point. Because the value of your virginity is in the blood, sweat, and tears it takes to get your virginity from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite so on the night you lay with your lover, you have something to give them that you had to fight to keep. See, anyone can give away something expensive, but only people that understand sacrifice can give away something really valuable. So, you know, when we talk to our kids about sex, you know, it's, I, I, I mean, I hear talks that seem something like this, like, if you do that, you're going to go blind. <laughs> you're going to get a disease. You're going to get someone pregnant. You're going to, and, you know, and we tell our kids all the things that could go wrong in sex. And, and by the way, many of them are right. We need to talk to them about that. But how many know it's hard to punish people into purity? And I'd, I'd suggest to you that it's very difficult to create a positive by giving them a bunch of negatives. And what I'm getting at is this. It's inside of all of us. Competition, all of us love competition of some kind. And that competitive thing that we have is should be, we should release that. We should release our children into fighting for their purity. Because when they lay with their lover, how many understand the greater your sex drive, and there are levels of sex drive, we know, the greater the sex drive, the bigger the trophy that you're going to give to your lover on the night you lay with him. Good word, Chris. Thank you for that. How many know that your, your, your virginity is your trophy when you come to the honeymoon suite with your lover. You gave them something 
that you literally spent years having to protect, battles that you won, appetites you had to manage, people who were trying to take away your trophy. When you get to the honeymoon suite, it's supposed to be a celebration victory. So it's really important that our, our children understand, our young people understand, that it's not just so you don't get pregnant. You know, how many know when God says no, it's always for your benefit? And God's the one who created sex. How many know, isn't it good that God didn't like make us like lay an egg like birds? Like lay an egg, we sit on the egg. All right, it's your turn. You come sit on the egg now. We do that for nine months. How many of you would have been here if it wasn't fun? And I'm concerned that we're losing a generation because we are not adequately teaching our children about sexuality. And when our children, when they hit puberty, they begin to feel shame over something that's not shameful. And so little Johnny, you know, it goes to Jesus culture or some, some event, you know, for young people. And, you know, they're worshiping. They're like, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you're amazing. And little Johnny's there. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, amazing. He just turned 13. Jesus, I, I want to have sex with somebody. <laughs> and then he comes to his youth pastor and he's like, I, I have a problem. What, what is it, Johnny? I got, I got a problem. Johnny, what's the problem? I, I, I want to have sex with somebody. Okay, let's gather the elders. Right? This is typical. Let's gather the elders. We get the elders around Johnny, and we pray in the spirit. Sexual spirits. Johnny, how do you feel? I want to have sex with somebody. And Johnny figures out who he shouldn't tell. Hello. Johnny figures out who he shouldn't tell that he's having a struggle. And so the goal is not to get rid of your sex drive. The goal is to learn to manage your appetite. And parents, part of what we do is teach our children how to manage the monster. Did you get that? <laughs> I love it. Um, Paul said, when he was in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at it in a few minutes, but... Paul said, it's better, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I love the message Bible says, it's better to marry than to be sexually tortured. <laughs> In other words, God's answer to being sexually tortured is to get married. People don't like when I say that. You shouldn't marry for sex. No, but you should. <laughs> also. Also. Are you following me? And one of the ways as parents that we teach our children how to manage their sexual appetites because parents write me all the time and say, they say to me, you say we should teach our children to manage their sexual appetites. How do we do that? Well, actually, you begin teaching them how to manage their appetites by delaying gratification when they're little. So when little Johnny's going through the store in the basket at the grocery store and he wants a candy and he wants ice cream and he's screaming for this and that, and you give him what he's screaming for, you just taught him the opposite of what he needs to learn how to manage his appetites. You just, you just told him, if you yell loud enough, you'll get what you need. And by the way, you don't want him to think that when he's with a girl and he's 16. You want him to learn, you might want a candy bar, and candy bars are okay to have, but after dinner. 
And what I'm getting at is that we're teaching our children, you don't always get what you want when you want it. And what you want isn't always healthy for you when you want it. And what I'm getting at is this is the beginning of teaching them by the time they get to 12, 13, 14, and they start to have this. I, I love the fact that, that we're not born with a sex drive because we get 10, 12, 13, 14 years to teach them how to manage gratification. So when they, get, when, they, when, when they come into a sex drive, which remember is all about learning how to now manage another gratification, that we've been, they already have been, they've already been trained in gratification delay so that we can say to them, hey, when you get married, this is going to be wonderful. And they're like, well, that's 10 years from now. And go, yes, welcome to managing yourself. And by the way, when you get married, you'll have to manage yourself again. Because now you're going to manage yourself to one woman, one man, right? You're still going to manage yourself, by the way. Some of the single people are like, when I get married, I'm just going to have sex every day. It's like, maybe. <laughs> and then, maybe not. <laughs> but the point is, <laughs> some of you young people are so funny. <laughs> Watching faces is so funny when I teach it. There's a story in, um, in 2 Samuel 24 in which there's a plague on the land and David is commissioned to stop the plague. And the prophet, Nathan, comes to him and said, if you want to stop the plague, you need to go to this guy's farm, you need to buy a piece of his land, you need to build an altar, and you need to, and you need to give a sacrifice to God and the plague will stop. Of course, David rushes to the man's property and the man, a very wealthy man, sees the king coming to his property. You can imagine. He's like, what's the king doing here? He runs out to meet King David in the field. He says, King David, what are you doing here? He said, I have to buy your property so I can build an altar and offer a sacrifice and stop the plague. And the, the, the man says to him, oh, no, you don't need to buy it. I will give it to you. You can have it for free. And David makes this profound statement that's so typical of David. Far be it from me that I should offer to God something that costs me nothing. See, this is it. This is what our children need to learn. They need to learn that when I sacrifice for something, the value dramatically increases. When I hold off that, when I hold off that, that guy, that girl, that, that, you know, I delay, I'm dating these people, and they're like, would you like, no, no, no. And, I, and I'm saying no. What I'm actually saying is yes to my future. I'm saying yes to my future. I'm saying yes to something better. I'm saying yes to better sex in marriage. It's important that we find, that we find joy, that we teach our children that sexuality is actually beautiful. It's actually God's idea. It's actually celebrated. It's God actually talks about it from... From Genesis to Revelation, God talks about sexuality. God's not the one that's nervous. You know that, 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 that anxiety you feel right now sitting in the seat? Like, what's he going to say next? That's not coming from God. That's coming from a culture that for hundreds of years have shamed sex. Now, you might remember Jew Jewish weddings lasted a week. You'll remember Jesus made wine for a wedding at Canaan. How many of you remember the story? Uh, Jewish weddings are really beautiful, and they tell us a lot about how God views sexuality. So a wedding would last a week, and they would exchange vows, very much like uh, American culture, European culture. The bride and groom would come up front. They would exchange vows with one another. It was always a family affair. There was no such thing as going to a judge to be married. 
you, you had the family there. While the husband and wife were exchanging vows, the men of both families would bring their weapons and lay them in front of the bride and groom. And then when the, when the exchange of vows was over, there was no celebration, there was no dancing, there was no clapping, there was no singing, there was no drinking. Everyone stayed, they stayed, I don't know if they stayed seated, but they stayed there while the bride and groom went into the bridal chamber, which most often was a tent, was a, a tented room in the middle of the wedding feast. The bride and groom would go into the bridal chamber and they would consummate the marriage. You know, I'm not talking about consummate, you know, consummate the marriage. Now, let me just, let me just set the, the tone for you. This was not an over 18, over 21 event. This was a family affair in which little children would be there. Are you following me? What I'm getting at is Jewish culture didn't have a talk. They had a sexually healthy culture in which children were exposed to sexuality from the time they were little. So they go into the bridal chamber, they consummate the marriage, and then they throw the bloody sheet, which most often should be bloody, right? Over the bridal chamber wall. And then the celebration would start the dancing, the drinking of the wine, the singing. Now you can imagine little Johnny, he's, he's waited with everyone outside the bridal chamber. And, you know, and, and by the time he gets to be a teenager, he's been to many weddings. And he's, let's just say he's four. And he, you know, he hears some noise and then he sees the bloody sheet. And he's like, oh, they got in a fight already. <laughs> and the point is, is that that wedding becomes a conversation piece for you to have a conversation, age-appropriate conversation, with your children. So that sex is not hidden in a corner someplace, done in some dark alley, whispered in some smoky room. It's actually talked about openly, what's happening there. I'd like to suggest to you that in the agricultural age, people were more uh, sexuality was, was not ashamed because you would be work, most people would work on a farm or at least be associated with a farm where animals mated and you know, little children would, would see that from the time they were little. And in other words, what I'm getting at is it just was no big deal. Nowadays, you know, when we talk to our kids about sex, we're like, we're like whispering like, come over here, you know. <laughs> and you know, shame is counterfeit conviction. The one thing one of the things you want to make sure that does not happen in your house is that your children carry shame because shame won't keep them from perverse, from being perverse. Shame will actually drive them into perversity. So it's your job to keep them out of shame. And one of the ways we do that is, one of the ways we, we actually release shame on them is the way we relate to sexuality. The way we talk to them, like our children, when our children are really little, we go, nose, and they go, nose. <laughs> ears, ears. Mouth, mouth. You get the idea. Eyes, eyes. And they touch their penis, and we make it, we make it some other thing. Like, oh, that's your tittle. <laughs> their vagina, like, oh, that's your thinger. <laughs> and you know, kids do discovery, right? We know, like... I remember our grandkids most, most recently, when our grandkids were really tiny, though, they play with their tongue, they play with their ears, but they also play with their penis and their vagina. And if you go slap their hands like, don't touch that, you know what you did? You just told them there's a part of your body that's shameful. Don't ever touch it. 
And we get concerned, like, oh, my kid's masturbating. He's three. He's not masturbating. He's discovering. She's discovering. It's okay. It's called normal. And we get all freaked out about it. And we're like, oh, you know, call the CPC. I didn't think our kids were molested. It's like, maybe, but probably not. Probably they're doing what humans do. Because they don't know it's shameful until you tell them it is. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden with God. When they ate the tree of knowledge and good and evil, they felt like they were doing something wrong, and they covered themselves. Do you know there was nothing wrong with them being naked together? <laughs> what I'm getting at is this, is that when we, shame drives us from the presence of God, and we end up with more rules than God has. I want to read you a few verses from the Bible. What am I trying to accomplish right now? To let you know that God's not nervous about sex. He actually enjoys the idea. Proverbs 5.15. If you want to turn there, I want to show you it's in the Bible. Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, springs of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not a stranger's with you. Let your fountain be blessed and, re and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind, as a grateful, great, graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated with her love always. Now, that's Proverbs. Let's do Song of Solomon medium. <laughs> Song of Solomon chapter 7, verse 1. I'm just trying to tell you, like, the anxiety you have over sexuality when the subject comes up or when your children ask about it or, you know, when it comes up in church, you're like... Are we supposed to actually be talking about this? Isn't this church? Yes. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O princess daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of your hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat, fenced about with lilies. I tried this on my wife one night. It didn't go well at all. <laughs> When I finished reading this, she's like, no. <laughs> Your two breasts are like twin fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like pools of Hesperon by the gate of Bathram. Your nose is like the tower of, of Lebanon, which faces towards <laughs> Damascus. Your head, crown, your, your head crowns you like Carmel with flowing locks of hair like purple threads. And the king is captivated by your thresses. How beautiful and delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your statue is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said I will climb the palm tree, and I'll take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath be like apples. When I got about there, she's like, no. I'd like to climb, no. Okay. I'll be working on managing my sex drive at this moment. How's that? <laughs> Why am I reading that to you? I'm reading it to you so you, you know God is not a prude. God is not nervous. And, and I think that one of the reasons why we have so much perversion is because we're not doing a good job of teaching the real thing. You know, perversion means perversion. The wrong version. You know, we, we talked about doing some things uh, 
to talk, you know, we talked through as a team, talking about homosexuality and adultery and different perversions. And as we interacted, we thought, you know what, we haven't done really enough on actually healthy sexuality. <laughs> and probably if we talked about healthy sexuality, people would be able to spot the perversions. So, um, the difference, how many know the difference between marriage and cohabiting? Cohabiting means I'm in this for what I can get. Don't we all know people that have, they're, like, they're living together and they've been together a long time and sometimes they even have one, two, three, four children? And you're like, why don't you get married? They're like, it's just a piece of paper. Yeah, if it's a piece of paper, why don't you sign it? I'll tell you why you don't sign it, because cohabiting says I'm in this for what I can get. And I don't want to sign a piece of paper that metaphorically says I'm going to be with you forever because it takes away the tool of manipulation that I use to get you to do what I want. In other words, I say to you, I'm not going to sign that because I use the fear of abandoning you to get what I want from you. So I don't make a lifetime covenant in, with you because I'm not in this for you, I'm in it for me. But marriage says... I'm in this, I've come to lay my life down. I've come to lay my life down for you. And the way a great marriage works is when I look out for Kathy's needs, I lay down my life so she gets what she needs, and she lays down her life for my needs. So I don't, I don't worry about my needs, she's concerned about my needs. And she doesn't have to worry about her needs because we've come into a covenant relationship where we lay our lives down together. How many know that God wanted children to be born out of covenant? That's why he gave a woman a hymen, which is a sack of blood inside of her vagina. I understand people write me all the time, like, it doesn't always break before you get, sometimes it breaks before you get married, sometimes it doesn't, I understand all that. But the general idea is, is that that sack of blood typically breaks when you have intercourse for the first time. Why? Because God's, God wants children to be born out of covenant, so he provided the blood. So that the, the covenant could be made before the children were conceived. How many understand that if children are born out of covenant, in other words, inside of covenant, they're born because you have a covenant, then your children actually remind you of the covenant you've made with the man of your dreams, the woman of your dreams. But think about what children walk around with when their parents have no covenant. Why do you think so many kids live in insecurity and lack of identity? Because their parents didn't come into a covenant. How many of you know that, see, two men and two women cannot marry. I'm not saying they can't make a covenant or a civil agreement, but the word marry comes from the word to merge. See, when God, in Genesis chapter 2, God took the woman out of the man. Read it for yourself. God took the woman, the woman was in the man. How do you know that? Because when Adam woke up, he said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and it says, the woman was taken out of the man. Are you with me? So first of all, guys, I want to say this. You can't get in touch with your feminine side because it left you. So think about this. And I, there's lots of theories of what happened before this as far as Adam. But Adam, the woman, was in the man. Now, all theologians agree with that. The, previous to that, there's lots of discussion about what that could have looked like. But the woman was in the man. And I think it looks something like this. So Adam wakes up. God put Adam to sleep. He took the woman out of the man. And when the man wakes up, he sees the woman, if you will, 
he feels, I would, this is Chris's version, I think that he realizes that the feminine side is no longer in him because it began in him. When he wakes up, my thoughts are, he wakes up and something's missing and he sees it personified in the woman. And he begins to prophesy to her immediately. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Why does he do that? Because he's missing the other half of him. You'll notice that God never counts a woman in a crowd from that point on. 5,000 men, 3,000 men, 2,000 men. Why doesn't he count the woman? Because God said a man and a woman equal one. So the point is this. It takes a man and a woman to actually merge. Because a man didn't come out of the man, a woman came out of the man. Good point. I want to give you seven reasons to have sex inside of marriage. The pause was on purpose. Number one, to make a blood covenant with one another. I think I've already made that clear. Number two, to create an intimate bond between husband and wife. How many know when Adam, it says that Adam knew Eve. Adam knew Eve. The word knew is yada. It's actually not sex there. That word doesn't have anything to do with intercourse. It means God, God knows that you know that biologically they had intercourse, but what he doesn't think that you may know is that they also had into me you see. So the second reason why we have sex is so that we can be intimate. The third reason is to bear children, Genesis 1.28. The fourth reason is to have pleasure, Song of Solomon 1.2. I don't think you want me to read that. The fifth reason is very interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, it says this, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. In other words, you actually have a duty to meet each other's sexual need. And the sixth reason is to express romantic love to one another. And the seventh reason is very interesting. In fact, it goes with the number five, which I should have moved up. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, it says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Very interesting. Did you notice that, that sex inside of marriage is actually warfare? And Paul said that you have a duty to meet each other's natural desire so that the devil doesn't actually tempt you. Good word, Chris. Thank you. Okay, so... Number one was celebrate your sexuality. How do I create a healthy sexual culture? Celebrate your sexuality. Number two is this. Number two is this. Number two is this. Communicate openly about sex and train your kids. Now, there's a beautiful principle called the, the principle of first mention. And it says this. Let me just read it to you. When we hear about a subject for the first time, it becomes the foundation by which we determine what we believe. Everything, we, everything else that we are told about that same subject is now weighed against, the foundational core, against these found, foundational core values. In other words, if someone else tells your kids about sex before we do, our kids will have to change their belief system to embrace our values. Okay, here's the point. The first time you hear about something, about any subject, it isn't just a fact, it's lenses in which I view that subject. Are you following me? Yeah. 
So if I teach my children about healthy sexuality from their time a little, you know, age-appropriate sexuality, and by the time they get to school, let's say they go to public school, they get to school at 13 or 14, and the teacher says, well, homosexuality is normal, bisexuality, they're going to measure what the teacher says by what they already have heard from their parents. Because it's not just a fact, it's a perspective. Are you with me? But if you don't teach your children about sexuality first, and the school system, or their friends, or wherever else, the movies, teach your kids about sexuality, and then at 15 or 16, you decide to have the talk, they are going to measure the talk by what they already heard. And if they accept the talk, they will have to undo a foundation that's been taught to them. They will literally have to jackhammer the foundation they've already heard and build a new foundation. I believe that this, this principle first mentioned that God put in us so that we can actually be the ones who instill virtues and values in our children. But here's the challenge. So many parents are not teaching their children about sexuality. And so they get to the school system and everybody screams at the school system. And I'm like, listen, you could be changing the school system if you just teach little Johnny and little Mary about sexuality. They'll be going, uh, sorry, sir, teacher, that's not true. No, no, let me tell you the way my folks told me. In other words, our kids will be a force for good if we set them upright. So teach your kids about sexuality. Number three, remove shame from sex. And we already talked a little bit about this, but it's really important that when you talk to your kids, you're ready. And what I'm getting at is this. If you're uncomfortable with the subject, practice in the mirror. I'm not kidding you. Practice with one another because... If you're, you know, your kids know you really well. And if you sit down with them and you're like, okay, your mother and I, go first, honey. <laughs> They're immediately like, listen, it isn't just what you're saying. People, uh, I know there's this great saying that says, you'll, for, you'll, um, you'll remember some of what you hear. You'll remember more of what you do. But you'll always remember the way someone made you feel. Yeah. If you're in the room and you're trying to tell your kids about sexuality, and you feel shame, I guarantee you that they're going to hear superimposed over your message, shame. And remember, you don't want shame to be in your children's life. So practice. I literally mean practice. Like educate yourself, which is the next point. Educate yourself. You know, we have great materials. There's lots of good uh, books around. Read those books. The More Revolution book. Like don't give your kid that book without reading it yourself. Read it yourself. Know what your kids th are thinking. Know the right way. If you're not good at something, find, bring somebody else in. Uh, if you have a friend or you know, a, a neighbor who's really good at teaching sexuality to their kids, bring them over and do a group thing. I'm just saying, do something, but do something. Don't do nothing. Thank you, Chris. It's all right. Got it. What do we have? Eight minutes. Good. I'm going to skip to the, almost the last points here. Develop a battle plan with your kids to fight for their purity. It's really important that your kids know that you're with them. I remember uh, Jason, he, he's allowed me to tell the story. He got stuck in porn when he was, I don't know, around 15. And I think he was stuck for three or four months and he came out. I still remember this conversation. We're sitting on the couch. He came out and talked to me and said, Dad, I have a problem with porn. I said, okay. We, he talked about his problem and how it was happening and what it was doing to him. And I'm like, okay. 
And let me just say this. When your kids tell you something, don't panic. Even if you're freaked out. Fake it. I said, okay, great. What, what's your plan? Because how many of you know, my plan's not going to work for him. Only his plan's going to work for him. Now, I can influence his plan, but if it's not his plan, how many know, it's not going to work. I can't stay with him 24-7. So he shared a plan that he had, and I didn't think it was a great plan, but I thought, it's his plan. Maybe it'll work for him. So he tried that plan. I don't remember, two or three months went by, and another, I remember we had this another, another talk, and he said, Dad, you know, I said, how's that plan working for you? He said, not very good. I still have some struggles. And I'm like, all right, so, um, so what's your plan? He said, well, you know, da-da-da, I'm going to do this extra stuff. And I said, oh, that's great. Okay, well, let's try that. So we prayed together. He did that. I think it was plan two. And so a month or so later, how are you doing? I'm not doing too good. Da-da-da. You know, we've been praying for him. And I said, son, why don't we make this a family affair? Why don't we tell the whole family and we will surround you with prayer, and we will be with you in this fight. So we told the whole family. He told the whole family. It was beautiful. It was like, I have a struggle, been talking to dad, I'm not getting breakthrough, I need help. We all prayed for him, and within, I think it was 12 months, he was free of it. It's become actually a place of strength in his life. My, and here's this testimony. I've often experienced things that are I've often experienced life that's hard, that I can't beat myself. But I've never experienced anything in life that my family, that's bigger than my family. I've often experienced things that are bigger than me, but I've never experienced anything bigger than my family. And what I'm getting at, it's so beautiful when, you know, sex isn't like this thing we talk about in the closet, like, let's just get together, let's whisper to your, you know. No, it's like, hey, you got a problem? Let's talk through it. Let's work it out. Let's keep it out of the darkness. Let's, let's be open about it. And one of the things that we, we do, we need to create a sexually healthy culture where, again, where sex isn't, isn't shamed. I remember when we lived in Weaverville, we had our, our bedroom, the kids' bedrooms were upstairs, and our bedroom was downstairs, and the, the room right next to it was the kitchen. So we had a 10 o'clock rule. When our kids were teenagers, you can't be in the kitchen after 10 o'clock. And, and you know, it didn't take them long to figure out why. They're like, oh, mom and dad are having sex in there. That's why they don't want us in there after 10 o'clock. I'm like, that's right. So listen, <laughs> you need something from the refrigerator, you get it before 10 o'clock. <laughs> or you go without eating. You get the point. It's like, it's not something that should be secret. It's not like your mom and I, the stork brought you. Actually, you know, the Holy Spirit hovered over your mother, and I still haven't touched her. That's how your kids feel if you don't actually talk to them. Okay, last thing, develop a plan for purity with your children. Don't, listen, don't, when your kids are teenagers, don't do anything for them, do it with them. Every one of our kids, we took them individually out to a dinner, really nice dinner. We, we bought them a purity ring. We talked through this talk, a little longer, of course, talked to them about their virginity. They had already experienced a, those kind of talks before, but here's a private talk, one-on-one. -on -one. We are like, we want to help you. We want to be there for you. When you're struggling, and you will struggle, what are we telling them? We're not saying, we have no faith for this. We're saying, it's normal 
to struggle managing your sex drive, and we're here for you. And when you have a struggle, you just need to walk by us and say, I'm struggling, and we'll just pray about it. And if you need to talk about it, we can talk about it. And we gave them a purity ring, and they wore that purity ring till the day they were married. And they gave that purity ring to their spouses on their wedding night. It's beautiful. You, we have a plan. We teach them how to manage their sex drive. There's a bunch more stuff, but I want to finish with this one thought. And uh, it's developed really well in the More Revolution book. If your kids fail, life isn't over. God restores virginity. We do sexual moral revolution conferences all over the world. Now, um, Ben and Havla are over that ministry. They've done a wonderful job taking it to a complete different level. Havla is a fantastic teacher. But one thing we do in every single conference is we have a time when we pray for the restoration of virginity. We, did it, we do it in our school every year. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of girls send me messages saying, God restored me even physically. He restored my hymen. And, and I, what I'm getting at is this. We, t- we sang, one of the songs we sang, God does the impossible. We want kids, we want young people to have something to fight for. I can't tell you how many young students we have in school ministry, we talk about virginity, there's often just weeping from the fact, I have had girls line up, guys line up for, for an hour after some sessions when I can stay, just saying, my mother, my father never taught me this. Just weeping, and, I'm, and it's almost like it's hopeless, it's over, what, why did, I've given myself to many men, many women, it's like, it's not over. <laughs> With God, God restores everything. He makes you new. We call it being a born-again virgin. (laughs) We're a born-again virgin. So what I'm getting at is wherever your kids are at, if they've struggled, they've fallen, it's like they need hope that they can be restored. And then from that day on, listen to me, just to finish, when from that day on, from the time you pray for them, from the time God restores them, you say to them, now you have something to fight for. You have something, God picked up your trophy, he dusted it off. If it was broken, he put it back together like only he can do. He handed it back to you and he said, run again. You can do this. Would you stand, please? Can I have the ministry team come to the front while we're getting ready here? I want to pray for God to give you wisdom. How many of you think you need some wisdom? I want to pray for God to give you wisdom right now. Would you put your hand on your heart? Because I want you to have a heart full of wisdom. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name that every single person in this room, whether they're a parent, whether they're a student, whether they're a child, the people who are listening by Bethel TV, I pray that you would give them supernatural wisdom, that we would break the spirit of perversion that's over our country because we would equip, come on, we would equip, equip children with arrows, that they would release arrows of purity, arrows of virginity, arrows of morality. Lord, that we would send them out as noble women and noble men into a country and bring light where there was once darkness. In the name of Jesus, I pray that you'd break shame off of our homes and that our homes would be places of great joy and that we would celebrate the joy of sexuality in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The last thing we want to do before you leave is 
we want, we've just really made a commitment in this season to ask anyone who may want to know Jesus, maybe you've fallen away, maybe you've been away a long time, or maybe you've never met Jesus. You know, it, would be, it wouldn't be a coincidence that you're in church this morning. So if that's you, would you just raise your hand? We don't in any way want to shame you, but we've been seeing just lots of people find Jesus in these moments. Maybe you're looking for your way back, or maybe you're finding Jesus for the first time. Would you just raise your hand right now, if that's you? Oh, cool. Somebody over there. God bless you. Welcome to the kingdom. The Bible actually says that the angels rejoice more in one person coming home than they do in all the people who are home. So today you just made angels happy. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else you, you need to make your life right with Jesus this morning? Is there someone else? There's somebody over there? Oh, right there. Raise your hand. Oh, God bless you. So excited for you. God bless you. Is there anyone else? What I'd like you guys to do, um, over there, good. There's some folks right over here, they'd like to pray with you. you can you raise your hands really high? Because they're all the way in the back, both of them. There's folks right over here, they would just like to take 10 minutes and pray with you, give you a Bible, and get you started on a good path. No one will shame you, embarrass you. Just right over here, just come over here as we, um, let, as we let everybody go home. All right, God bless you. Have a really great day.